friends and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. As we embrace the sustained joy of the Easter season, we invite you to join us every week on this show where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time or catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We're also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and our first guest is someone I've been very much looking forward to talking to. Her name is Nicole Neely, and she is the president of a group called Parents Defending Education. This is a grassroots effort to take schools back from damaging ideologies. I'll mention just two. There's transgender ideology and there's critical race theory. These are ideologies that are taking over um, schools, whether public, private, or even Catholic schools, in a way that is insidious, that is happening usually away from the the overview of the parents behind closed classroom doors. You know, in, in a lot of ways, the pandemic has... Um, exposed these uh, these things because children were staying home this happened to me in my own in my own home children were three or four of my kids <laughs> were home taking uh, their classes um, in, at the kitchen counter and I was able to look over their shoulders and and see things that surprised me not in all their schools but certainly at the, the college level things that surprised me and saddened me and this has been happening all across the country people have been learning that their children are being taught things at school that they don't agree with and they're wondering why political indoctrination and ideological indoctrination is taking the place of education so with uh, all that said let's uh, welcome to the show nicole neely Thank you for having me. So I am a fully paid up member of Parents Defending Education. I'm very aware of your, your website. I love what you're, what you're doing. I want to understand it better. Why don't you explain to our listeners what the problem is out there and what your organization proposes to do about it? Sure. So it's um, one thing that has concerned me, both as someone who has come from working in higher ed for the past several years, as well as the parent of two small children, is just to see the creeping level. Uh, level of political indoctrination that has crept into our K-12 schools. Schools taking on and um, issues that are highly politically charged and not teaching students how to engage with those critically, not um, teaching them how to think about issues, uh, but instead teaching them what to think about issues. And at a time when our nation is so polarized, um, this strikes me as just a very dangerous path to go down. Um, and so I thought, you know what, let's do something about it. Um, I think last year in 2020 was almost a perfect storm because with the lockdowns, there were parents who started, started to realize that um, you know their, their schools actually don't necessarily care that much about what their input is. And then um, classes suddenly were in parents' living rooms and they were able to see what their children were learning. And so I think a lot of parents realize there is a significant problem going on in our schools, but it's really hard to know what to do about it. You know, particularly if you spend your you send your child to a public school, you know, they're taxpayer funded. But I mean, what's the oversight? What's the process to get involved? Um, we have all seen and heard horror stories about people who have tried to speak up, tried to voice concerns, and they get called names. They get called racist or sexist or whatever else. And so I think a lot of people are very reticent to engage on these issues. Um, there was a story last year that actually really struck me. It was um, it, I'm from Chicago originally. And there was a story in the Wall Street Journal about a, a district where they superintendent said he was going to let black and brown children back before white children in the name of anti-racism. I thought, well, that's unconstitutional. You can't do that. And it, it struck me very and made me very sad that you know, I think a lot of people don't realize that's unconstitutional. Um, and so I thought, well, let's start by giving people the knowledge they know how to engage properly in these issues, where the lines are drawn. And so when those lines are crossed, people know that a wrong has been committed. And then from there, let's teach people how to engage in whatever level you know they may feel comfortable doing so. It might be creating a parent organization. It might be sending a letter to the editor. Um, it might just be passing an anonymous tip. But politics goes to he who shows up. And if we care about our children and we care about schools, then let's show up. I mentioned in the in the intro, I mentioned a couple of uh, problematic ideologies that I, I believe I know because I have five children and some of them are in stages of education. Some have already graduated, thank God. Um, a little a little ahead of this, uh, of the vanguard here. But I mentioned two ideologies which are very problematic, which is transgender ideology and critical race theory. Would you say these two are the are the two big elephants in the room that people are, are encountering in their children's classrooms at, and, and, and 
And if so, are there others that are just as problematic? Yeah, I mean, I think um, racial issues have definitely come to the forefront um, over the past several months. Um, but there has been for many years. Um, yeah, parents have been very upset about comprehensive sex education as well. What is being taught to our children, how it is being taught. Um, and then what level of oversight do parents have over what their children are learning? Um, it's been um, there's been a number of tweets that have been flagged over the past year of teachers who have expressed concerns with virtual learning because they said, well, now parents know now they're kind of now parents can interfere in our process. Um, and, and just so the, the whole idea to kind of watch schools suddenly shift from this position of being on the side of you know families of parents to being in this very adversarial position and viewing their role as unprogramming children from what the values that we may have at home is is really perplexing to me because it wasn't like that when I grew up. Um, and I think this is, a you know, that, that puts us in a really dangerous position as a society when, you know, school officials, people who have no relation to your child um, have taken it upon themselves. They condemn the choices you've made and they are actively working to undermine it. Um, that to me is something that is absolutely unacceptable and cannot stand. It is my impression that teachers and uh, who go to teacher college, for instance, are being marinated in a, in a very leftist environment. And, and they're coming back to, to, to schools to teach our children. And it's not surprising that their way of thinking and the way of thinking of the parents who are sending their children or entrusting their children to these schools are so widely divergent. I agree. Um, yeah, we've heard a lot of horror stories about both the teacher colleges as well as kind of the continuing ed classes. You know, when there's a teacher in service day and they need mm -hmm. to do training where where a lot of these ideas are coming from. And somewhat surprisingly, we have on our um, on our website, defendinged.org, we have a map up. We call it our indoctrination map um, where we have incidents that have been reported to us from across the country. We, we anonymize them if people want their names you know, to not be included or to, so people can't tell where the tips have come from. But somewhat interestingly, a lot of the tips have come come from teachers. Um, and I, I suspect that a lot of them are just teachers who have been around, you know, they've been in the profession for 20 or 30 years, and they're a little bit fed up with this too. Um, and they don't like what they're being taught. They don't like what's being shoved down their throat, being separated into different groups. I mean, we, we hear this a lot of teachers being separated into groups on the basis of skin color um, and forced to confess their privilege, much like what's being done to students. And um, that there is, yeah, there are a lot of people that are very unhappy with what has happened, um, including teachers. So some of them are, are are, have, have drunk the Kool-Aid, but some of them are, are trying to resist, which is interesting. That is interesting. And thank God that they are there and are, are making an effort in, in the right direction. And, and I'm sorry that they're, in, that they're in danger. They feel that they're in danger of losing their jobs if, if they speak out, because I'm sure they must feel that way. Um, right. I have, my experience has been with my children that they, my, my children, that um, especially the ones in college, but also the ones that have one child that went to a private secular school, that the, the need to conform on certain subjects is so huge <laughs> that, right. that they feel completely, the child feels completely powerless. And, and also, I mean, it's really the worst kind of discrimination, if you ask me, uh, is viewpoint discrimination. You know, teaching, teaching children that the values and ideas uh, and ideals of their parents are suspect and discriminatory. Yes, um, definitely. And yeah, there are students who are scared. There are parents who are scared because, yeah, I mean, let's think about the power dynamic that's at play here. I mean, students need to graduate, obviously. Um, a lot of them are looking for letters of um, recommendation to get into college. Um, and well, there, are, there are far too many horror stories in the news about, yeah, people who, um, you know, their, their personal information is leaked, there's retaliation, people try to get the parents fired. Um, and so I think many people make the calculus that it's just safer to keep my head down, keep my mouth shut, recite the talking points, and just try to not rock the boat. Um, but our children deserve better. Our communities deserve better. Um, and the fact that this is being done in our names with our tax dollars should offend and sicken us all. And that's why it's so important to me. You know, I think we need to expose this, shine a light on this, um, and, and then also send a message to people. You're not alone. There are lots of other people out there who are similarly unhappy because I think, you know, one thing that this movement tries to do is it tries to isolate people. If you disagree, then you're a horrible person and, you know, you shouldn't have anything good or wonderful and happy in your life. And that's not true. You can have, you can have concerns about diversity without wanting your children to be pitted against somebody. Um, you can have concerns about, um, you know, gender issues and marriage issues without being cast out into the wilderness. Um, these are things that people can talk about on our nightly news shows, but that students, teachers and faculty are afraid to speak about 
in our K-12 schools and on college campuses, too. And that, to me, is, I mean, it's almost like through the looking glass. I'm looking at your website, which for the for our listeners is called Defending ED. .org, um, and you have a great page um, that talks about resources, and you give three resources, Empower, Expose, and Engage. Would you mind going through each of those uh, sort of in a quick way and tell us how we empower, how we expose, and how we engage? Sure. Um, yeah, the empower to me, I mean, I think that's the most important part is like, let's know what our rights are. Let's know where the lines are drawn. Um I'm married to a constitutional lawyer, so this stuff is kind of like, you know, we talk about it all the time at the dinner table, but I realize, you know, most people kind of don't think about stuff like this. And so your rights at a public school are very different than your rights at a private school. So, um, you know, what are are your First Amendment rights? What is, um, if your child is forced to confess their privilege, you know, that's compelled speech. That's a First Amendment violation. If your child is separated on the basis of race or gender and is treated differently because of that, that could be a Title VI or Title IX violation. Those are very serious offenses, and that's something that we should do something about. For uh, private schools, you you, um, you you don't have as many rights, um, but there are other recourses. I mean, you signed a contract, and so that's something to pursue. Um, we also wanted to collect just a lot of the best writing on these topics because I realize most people, after working a full job and trying to virtually school their children, no, they don't want to sort through the internet to figure out what these mm-hmm. terms that are being swatted around are. And so let's just, we just wanted to put some of the best reading out there in one place so people could tackle that at their convenience. The exposed vertical to me is, I'm a firm believer in the saying, sunshine is the best disinfectant. I think a lot of parents just don't know what's going on in their school, in their city, in their state. Um, And so we're collecting these anecdotes. We have a tip line where people submit um, information to us and we put it up there. We've kind of been overwhelmed. There's so much out there. It's heartbreaking. But we really wanted to dispel the notion that this is just a California and a New York problem. This is everywhere. This is in red states and blue states and private schools and public schools. And so to show kind of the the depth and the breadth of this, but also, you know, we don't want people to be hopeless. We also wanted to show that there are parent organizations around the country that have sprung up to tackle this. Just regular people who have said, I've had enough. This is, you know, I'm not okay with this. Um, People who are banding together in their own communities to show up, ask questions, run for school board, fight back a little bit. And that to me is tremendously exciting. So we want people to network with each other. And then the last part is engage. What are tools that people could do to have their voices heard? Um, It could be something like passing on a tip to us anonymously. It could be sending a letter to the editor, writing an op-ed, showing up and just asking questions of your teacher, your superintendent, your school board, your principal, um, just to let them know, you know, you're on notice, guys, because I think a, a lot of these actor, these um, these officials are acting with impunity. They think there are no consequences. Well, you know, if, if it's a public school, we are your customers and you are accountable to us. And if you are not responsive, there will be consequences. I mean, I think that's how we start to ensure um, and, 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 you know, impose a level, a level of accountability in this process. So we have filed um, complaints with the Federal Department of Education through their Office of Civil Rights. We are filing Freedom of Information Act requests left and right for schools around the country just to get access to some of these contracts that have been spent. How much money are being spent on equity consultants? Um, what did you say when you pushed through this curriculum um, program that nobody likes? Um, what was involved in those decisions? Um, we deserve to know those things. And I want districts to know that if you are trying to connect these, this business in secret, we will find you. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTM Radio. I'm speaking to Nicole Neely. She president of Parents Defending Education, which is a grassroots effort to take back our schools from the radical ideologies that are filtering through not only in public schools, but private schools and Catholic schools included. And Nikki, this brings me to my own personal situation, which was is with a Catholic school. There, I live here, in, I live in Miami, and there is a Sacred Heart Catholic school. It's very posh. And many parents have been noticing that there is a critical race theory element um, drifting into the school. It's it's something that is supported by the that it's that, that is on the website of the Sacred Heart Association, um, the big uh, international Sacred Heart Educators Association. They've put you know systemic racism as one of the things that they are going to tackle in education. They put it up higher, much higher than things like dignity of life, which is a uh, you know a number one Catholic concern. And uh, the, a group of parents got together and wrote a letter to uh, to the administration asking that the school be based on Catholic. Um, that if, that if racism is fought, and racism should always be um, you know, fought as hard as possible, it should be done on Catholic uh, grounds, the grounds that all men are brothers and, and, and equally endowed by God and, and should always be respected and, and their dignity affirmed. Um, 
and not under not using this very politicized and, and reductionist way of thinking of critical race theory, which in the end causes racism because it divides people into oppressors and oppressed by the color of their skin. So there was a lot of pushback, and some of the people who signed the letter have been um, outed in a sense as racist. They've been called racists, and it's been rather ugly. So as a private school, as a Catholic school, um, what do you think parents of this of this school could could do next? Yeah, it's a, it's a question that comes up a lot because, yeah, certainly parents of private schools are much more limited um, in, in, in terms of their recourse. And, you know, one option, certainly, yeah, there's there's talking to the school and seeing how they react to it. And if the school seems unresponsive, you know, one thing we hear a lot is, well, you know, you should pull your, your child out. Um, I think, you know, there are there are other paths in between pulling your kid out entirely and, um, you know, expressing your concerns and being ignored. One thing that we've seen, one, one tactic we've seen deployed actually with, with some pretty good success is um, schools have, um, there are groups of families, students that have started to create anonymous Instagram pages, um, kind of showing just what the documents are that their students are receiving. Um, and that's the kind of thing where um, alumni and parents when they see it, they think, oh, my gosh, this is not what I have signed on for, because I think for a lot of private schools, um, money talks. And a lot of these schools depend on application fees, um, enrollment fees and then, uh, you know, enrollment tuition and then alumni giving um, and family giving. And when people see what's happening, um, they, they actually withhold their their donations. Um, this has happened most recently outside Chicago um, Loyola Academy, which is a, a Jesuit school. Um, one of the school's major funders was so outraged when he had heard um, through different you know, Fox News articles and stuff about what was going on and some of the teachings there and how students were being, you know, the curriculum had been racialized, radicalized, and students were being pitted against each other on the basis of their skin. He said, you know, I'm really sorry to hear that. Um, please remove my name from the building. Um, please return the, you know, <laughs> return XYZ gift. Um, and that, that got the school's attention in a hurry. And, you know, I realize most of us don't have the kind of, you know, heft with our, <laughs> with our private schools, you know, to, to get that kind of attention. But, you know, three or four families saying, I will not be giving to the annual drive this year. I have real concerns. Um, I think that starts to focus the school's attention too. Wow. Um, yeah, that's very so I think you know, that's talks. something else to consider. Right, yeah. What about reaching out to um, umbrella organizations like the Archdiocese? Have you have you heard of any success there? Um, yes, I think it depends on the Archdiocese, um, quite honestly, <laughs> um, unfortunately. Um, but I, I do think, um, yes, looping in, yeah, looping in like a higher authority um, also um, tends to help as well. Because, you know, the negative press is something that none of these institutions want. They, you know, they fear a story in the local paper. They fear a story in um, an outlet like yours um, because, then it just it puts it on people's radar. Then they have to go into damage control mode when, you know, frankly, a lot of this stuff should have it could have been avoided if you had just listened to your families and your stakeholders in the first place. Because I do think, you know, a lot of these ideas that are being pushed in some of these schools, it is not it is not coming from a desire from, you know, the majority of, of stakeholders in this process. You know, if you were to have an anonymous poll sent out to teachers and families and students is this the kind of programming they would want? Are these the curriculum choices they want? I think almost certainly the answer is usually overwhelmingly no. Um, and that's something else that um, we have seen some private schools, uh, some private school parents employ is asking that the school conduct such an anonymous poll. And it, it must be anonymous because if people's names are attached to it, then obviously they'll respond very differently um, because of this fear element. But um, to show that this, if this is something that is deeply unpopular, um, that's something that they should really think about. In college, uh, this kind of um, monoculture, this ideological monoculture is prevalent. It's more than prevalent. I would say it's it's uh, almost 100% of the uh, time it's there and strong. Mm -hmm. It's in every class, whether it's mathematics or philosophy. Uh, are the schools, is, is this kind of um, stuff coming back from college? Or are, Do high schools and grade schools think they're preparing their students for college so that the students go to college prepared to think only on one track? and not get themselves into trouble? Yeah, it's, it, that's a really good question. I think there is kind of a vicious cycle um, where some of the ideas, some of the programming that we see in universities, like um, these programs called bias response teams, where universities encourage students to report on each other, um, they started at the college level, the collegiate level, and now we see them trickling down into high schools and um, programs like that where students can you know, report on each other. And of course, you can see how an anonymous program encouraging 
people to tattle on each other can be easily weaponized. Um, but there is also, um, and we have, I have seen, I have heard echoes of this um, in the New York private school system where there is almost a, a mindset that, well, what we are being taught, this kind of woke mentality, um, it will prepare our children for when they go into a woke university like Harvard or a place like this that really kind of buys into all of this social theory. And so, you know, it's going to happen at one point and you don't want your child to get to Harvard or Stanford and not know the correct lingo and not know that you should be asking for people's pronouns because it kind of outs you as being ignorant. Um, and so I, I do think it's it's a little it, it's kind of trickling up as well as trickling down. Um, and that's to me why it's so important for families like yours, families like mine to step in and say, no, I will not let you treat my, treat my child that way. I will not let you disrespect my values this way. You know, you are there to teach my child how to read, how to write, you know, mathematics, not how, not what to think and, and not to fundamentally alter their worldview. It seems like there's a huge struggle ahead of American parents. Do you yeah. think it's a struggle that's worth fighting? Do you think that we can reverse this tide? I do think that we can reverse this tide. And I, I think this is the most important battle of our lives um, because, you know, we would it's, it's interesting to me, the kinds of parents that have come out of the woodwork, you know, sticking their necks out to fight, um, knowing that there will be consequences, that there might be repercussions. Um, what is interesting to me is a lot of the families I speak to actually are first generation Americans. They are they have you know, they chose to come here from India, from China, from Taiwan. And they said, you know, I wouldn't have moved here if I thought America was evil and systemically racist. Um, and I don't want my child to be taught those things. It's uh, funny. You know, I don't tell my child that math is racist. Teach my child calculus so he can get into MIT. I mean, there is this just like we have come from places where where, you know, <laughs> where things are evil. Um, it's funny, and, and it's funny you should say that, Nikki, at this school that I'm telling you about in Miami, which is called Carrollton, the, the majority of the girls are Hispanic, second generation or third generation. The parents, many of them come from, uh, you know, fled countries or their parents fled countries um, being gobbled up by socialism and communism. And they very, and, and the administration, however, is, um, uh, I think, more um, American or Anglo. And uh, and it's interesting to watch them try to enforce this um, anti-racist uh, ideology on Hispanic students <laughs> who are rejecting uh -huh. it because they uh -huh. recognize it as racist and and Marxist in many ways in the way right. it's expressed and the way it, it's it's uh, promulgated. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, my mother-in-law is uh, she's an immigrant. She she grew up in communist um, uh, Yugoslavia. And so she is just as evil as Robert E. Lee because of the color of her skin. I mean, some of this, you know, when you take it to its logical conclusion, is absurd. Um, and for someone to say, well, I am taking offense for you on, be, you know, because, you know, this thing is racist. I will just, I will just, I am well able to decide for myself what is offensive and to deal with that situation myself. I mean, I think, you know, this, this whole mindset really does our students and our children a disservice because, you know, it doesn't teach them to engage with the world as it is. It teaches people to engage with the world, you know, as, as someone has perceived it. Um, you know, I don't think that I am any more disadvantaged than somebody else because I am Asian, because I am a female. I mean, and for someone to tell me that I am disadvantaged or to tell my children that they are disadvantaged, how dare you do that? I mean, what kind of the, what are the mental health implications of doing this to children? Telling one set of kids that they're evil because of the color of their skin, another set of children that um, they have no chance of succeeding because America is systemically racist because of the color of their skin. That to me is child abuse. I Not to mention, I mean, you know, the, what, what about the test scores, you know, effect of this? If you teach my child math is racist, then how the heck is he going to get, you know, a 37 on his ACTs and get into a great school? He's not going to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it really is. A, it's a terrible injustice to both sides. If you call one group oppressors, you are being terribly unjust to them, of course. You, how, can, how can a child be an oppressor? <laughs> right. And then when you call a group a, a victim, a vic part of a victim group, I mean, that victim group mentality is so damaging. Yeah. Um, and so we hear anecdotes about students who come home from school asking their parents, am I still allowed to be friends with, you know, this child or that child? Because of the color of the skin, they are we are we are racializing everything, injecting it into places where it should not have been before. Now, so how can we move together as a country, right? How can we heal? How can we, you know, you know, compete on a, in a global um, uh, economy if we're pitted against each other, angry and mistrustful? I mean, that to me just it does our nation a great disservice. 
my husband and I had a long talk with my daughter who's starting in ninth grade in this school that I'm talking talking to you about. And we were explaining to her, so I'm Hispanic, I'm Cuban. My husband is what you would, people would call white nowadays and one of those dreaded white males. And um, my daughter's Chinese. She was adopted from China. So we were trying to tell her, okay, look, it's going to be very complicated in high school. You're going to be called both a victim and an oppressor depending on who's looking at you and how. Mm-hmm. And it was a very hard conversation to try to, to get that across to her. You know, she doesn't think of herself as uh, a member of a group. She thinks of herself as a member of a family. Mm, yeah. Um, and isn't that healthier? I mean, isn't that a better place for us to be just to, you know, to empathize it? I, I think about, you know, quotes from people like Martin Luther King. You know, we, we dream of a country where our children are judged by the character of their, the quality of, you know, by their, by their character, not the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. We have flipped that on its on its head, and now we are only judging people and, and assigning them value based on the color of their skin. I mean, that's that, it's appalling. Well, it seems to me it's like a national nightmare that we have to wake up out of. And um, thank you, uh, Nikki, for doing this wonderful part of waking us all up. Um, it, your organization is called Parents Defending Education. The website is defendinged.org. It's an excellent website, and um, it's full of wonderful resources. And I invite all our listeners to go online and maybe join, join as, a, as I did, as a member, um, so I can fully access it and and, um, and tell people about it. I mean, this is, like Nikki said, a fight of our lifetime. So thank you for being on with us today, Nikki. Thank you for having me. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. And next up, we have a fellow pro-life doctor and OBGYN. Her name is Dr. Christine Francis, and she is the chair of the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. And this is an organization that I follow. Welcome to the show, Dr. Francis. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Tell us about your organization, the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. Absolutely. So it is a bit of a mouthful. Um, so we like to say <laughs> AFLOG for short. That's a little bit easier to say. Um, but we are the largest non-sectarian professional medical organization of pro-life uh, women's health care providers in the world. So most of our membership is here in the United States, but we do have international members as well. We currently have about 7,000 members. So we're very proud that's growing rapidly, actually. You know, as more and more um, medical professionals, not just physicians, but other medical professionals as well, you know, seek to join a, a medical organization that can represent them professionally and represent their desire to practice life affirming medicine that, that refuses to use death as a therapeutic option. So we are here to represent, even though in our names, it's, in our name, it says OBGYNs, we have physicians of all specialties that, uh, that are members. Uh, we also have multiple subsections now as we kind of bring on more and more members from around the medical profession. I'm a radiologist and I do want to join your group. And one of the reasons is because I do a fetal ultrasound and it's yeah. very, very apparent to me that the fetus is a patient. We are living in this healthcare field where the fetus is sometimes a patient and sometimes a victim. And, it, mm. and it, to me, it's, it's schizophrenic to treat some people sometimes as people of dignity and sometimes as victims that can be discarded at the whim of a more powerful person or people. Absolutely. You know, we completely agree with that sentiment. And I, you put it so well, you know, especially in any sort of field of medicine that takes care of pregnant women. So, of course, myself as an OBGYN, but even like you said, as a radiologist, you know, you're you're uh, doing ultrasounds on on pregnant women and looking at uh, their baby. And you know, we know from the beginning of our medical training that when we take care of pregnant patients, we're taking care of two patients, like you said. And I've always thought the 
that that's one of the very unique challenges about the field of OBGYN is, you know, when you're taking care of that pregnant woman, you're not just assessing her health and her needs and her medical conditions, but you're assessing those of fetal human being that's growing inside of her as well. And, and you're right, it almost is like a schizophrenia to say that on the one hand, with a very desired pregnancy, you know, if that if that preborn child is experiencing complications, you know, maybe growth restriction or, you know, any number of things that we might follow that pregnancy for, for complications of that baby. If it's a wanted pregnancy, it is seen not only as the normal thing to do as an OBGYN, but the expected and the medical standard to do everything you can to maximize the health of that fetal human being. And yet on the flip side of that, if it's not a wanted pregnancy or if, you know, maybe that child has been given an adverse prenatal diagnosis where they're not expected to live for very long and and the family decides maybe they can't handle that or, or something like that, then all of a sudden we don't fight for that child anymore. You know, then all of a sudden it's okay for us to end that child's life. And and that is absolutely antithetical to um, the practice of medicine, to, you know, the hip oath that I don't know about you, but when I started medical school and had my white coat ceremony where, you know, I proudly put on my white coat for the first time, part of that white coat ceremony was that we recited the Hippocratic Oath, which actually, if you look at the original version, it expressly forbids recommending or providing an abortive remedy to women. And because even Hippocrates all those years ago recognized that that's not consistent with the practice of medicine. We are here to uphold and preserve life. We're not here to destroy it. We were talking about the schizophrenia in medicine, and there's another place where this is very apparent, which is in our neonatal ICUs. You know, when mm. we, as a, as a society, we spend billions and billions of dollars taking care of babies who are born, born prematurely, as we should. Right. Wonderful uh, children of God that we take care of with all our energies. And at the same time, in, in all across the United States, all these children who are born prematurely could have been aborted just as just as uh, legally and, and easily as, uh, well, actually much more easily than preserving their lives and saving them and saving them in the ICU. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you're right. And as we, as we kind of push that edge of violence, ability even further. You know, I mean, when you think back to 1973, when the horrible decision came out of the Supreme Court, you know, of Roe v. Wade that that legalized abortion across the country, you know, at that point in time, viability was somewhere around 28 weeks or so. And, you know, they started talking about that after viability, then states could impose restrictions on abortion, you know, recognizing that there's there's something about recognizing that a baby can survive outside of his or her mother's womb that I think takes some people back a little bit more about abortion. Of course, you and I both know that that, that life is valuable and, and worthy from the moment of, of fertilization, not just from the moment of viability. But, you know, even if we grant the viability argument, it's a moving target, right? So Mm -hmm. now... Even, you know, in my institution, now we've, we have survival down to about 23 weeks, sometimes even the end of the 22nd week. There are institutions in this country and in other countries as well that have survivability down to about 21 weeks. So there we're getting almost to the halfway point of pregnancy, which is so remarkable that medical science has brought us that far. But, you know, it's interesting then to watch how that interplays with the debate on abortion, because then if you have these babies now surviving at these younger gestational ages when they're born, then how can you justify killing them inside their mother's wombs or mm-hmm. or killing them when they're born alive, when they were meant to be aborted, but yet they're born alive? And, and so, you know, I think it just emphasizes that this, because this is a moving target, this point of viability, that can't be the basis upon which we we base personhood or the value or the worth of of a human being. You know, even if you just look at, I spent uh, three years after my residency training working at a mission hospital in rural Kenya. Our viability point there was more like 30 weeks, you know, just based on the, the medical technology that we had to support those babies. So, you know, so there would we say that abortion was fine all the way up to 30 weeks because that was the point of viability? I mean, I would say absolutely not because again, a person ability to 
survive on their own without any sort of support is not what determines their value or their worth. You know, another disturbing trend that I've that I've been following is one of the reasons that pro-abortionists give these days for having abortion be so prevalent is that pregnancy is dangerous, that maternal mortality is high. And, you know, as a doctor, I, I know very well that the safety of pregnant women is so it's spectacular compared, you know, in a historical perspective, women, pregnant women have never been safer, have never been more healthy, and can really look forward in almost all cases to a successful birth that doesn't lead to their death or to their impairment. And yet, at the same time, we have this constant drumbeat, well, pregnancy is so dangerous, you know, abortion saves women's lives. And it's it's so uh, wrong and sick from a historical and medical perspective. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. We certainly in this country, you know, again, having practiced in in rural Kenya, you know, I've seen the difference that good health care can make for for pregnant women. And, you know, I certainly wouldn't minimize the risks that some women face in their pregnancies. And, and, you know, I would say that in the U.S. for the for the level of medical care that we can provide in this country, our, our maternal mortality rate should be lower than it is. But abortion is not the answer to fix that. And unfortunately, so many people just decide to look at abortion as that's what we can do to decrease maternal mortality because of the study that I'm sure that you're aware of that was uh, published several years ago by David Grimes in the Green Journal that stated that abortion is 14 times safer than childbirth. However, they compared apples to oranges. Their denominators were not the same. Mm -hmm. We all know from basic math, you can't compare fractions (laughs) that have different denominators. So, So that study is actually pretty easy to pick up part. And if any of your listeners are interested in that, you can actually go to Applog's website and look at our, our document on maternal mortality. It gives a great assessment of that study. But, you know, maternal mortality is impacted by many, many things. And again, ending the life of a pregnant woman's child not only does not improve her rate of or her risk of dying from her pregnancy, but it actually carries its own significant risk with it as well. And this is something that, you know, all of us who care about women especially those of us in the medical field, should be fighting even harder for better data collection on this. You know, we live in a country where not even every state is required to report their number of abortions, much less their complications. And I'm sure, you know, as a radiologist, I'm sure you probably have had to do an ultrasound on a woman who just shows up in the emergency room with complications from an abortion. You know, Mm -hmm. her abortionist doesn't follow her to the hospital and her abortionist is not at the hospital taking care of her. It's those of us that are at the hospital that care about these women that end up getting called to take care of them. And so, you know, her abortionist can state that they have a 0% complication rate because they don't manage or see their own complications. And so, you know, when we live in a in a country that not only doesn't require reporting of the number of abortions, but certainly doesn't require complication reporting, then we really have no legitimate data. But when we look at data out of other countries that have, you know, centralized medical records and really good data collection, we actually see that the mortality rate related to abortion is significantly higher than the mortality rate related to a term delivery. And so we know that one, abortion isn't the fix for maternal mortality that it is often claimed to be, especially in the developing country, in developing countries. But two, in claiming that all we need to do is legalize abortion and that's going to decrease maternal mortality, we're completely ignoring the other solutions for women that women need that would actually decrease maternal mortality. You know, things like increasing access to good prenatal care and making sure that hospitals that are doing delivery have deliveries have adequate blood products. And, you know, all of these things that in this country we should be able to do, but those solutions are being ignored because we're so focused on that issue of increased access to abortion and keeping abortion legal. Um, But you and I both know legal doesn't equal safe. If you're just just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. We're talking with Dr. Christina Francis. She's the chair of the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. Now, talking about the mortality rate related to abortion, something's about to change because there have been there has been a big change recently at the Federal Drug Administration level with mm-hmm. chemical abortion. Tell us about that and 
what are the dangers, the new dangers that we are facing? Absolutely. So many of your listeners have probably heard about medication abortions or chemical abortions. Sometimes they're referred to. This is becoming a more and more common form of abortion, and it really is kind of the next frontier for the abortion industry. So it takes abortion out of the hospital and the surgical uh, center setting, and it puts it into a woman's home. It puts it into a girl's dorm room, you know, if she's a college student. So these are medications that are taken. It's actually two different medications that are taken. Uh, the first one under the previous safety restrictions or REMS that were in place, the first medication, Mifepristone, would be given um, at the abortion facility or at the prescriber's office, and she would take it there. And then the second medication, Mesoprostol, would be taken 24 to 48 hours later at home. Just a quick overview, Mifepristone, uh, what it does, it blocks the action of progesterone, which is a key hormone in early pregnancy, and essentially leads to starvation of that fetal human being. And then the mesoprostol that's given later induces contraction, painful contractions of her uterus, and it leads to a lot of pain, typically heavy vaginal bleeding. Um, if any of your listeners have seen the movie Unplanned, I think that movie did a really great job of portraying what these women go through. And so when this medication was approved or this medication regimen was approved in the year 2000, it was approved with safety restrictions in place, which later became known as the RAMs, um, that are only used so there's I think something like 20 something thousand medications approved by the FDA and only 50 or so of these medications have REMS in place and REMS are put into place for medications that have potentially very serious side effects and there's safety regulations that are put into place to try to maximize the quote unquote benefit of these medications and minimize the side effects. And so these were placed on Mifeprex because the FDA acknowledged when they approved this medication that there are very real risks associated with these medications, risks of severe hemorrhage, retained fetal tissue, infections, and even potentially death for the woman. So those were put into place and uh, as soon as the medication was approved and have been in place since then, although they were relaxed in, in 2016 to not be quite as stringent. So unfortunately, the American College of OBGYNs, which is kind of seen as the standard setting organization for the practice of women's health care in this country, in October petitioned the FDA to lift these REMS during the COVID pandemic, stating that it was too dangerous for women to have to see a physician in person to receive these medications. Uh, the FDA initially said no, and so ACOG sued them, and a, a federal judge in Maryland granted uh, their injunction against the REMS. And then just recently, the FDA sent them a letter um, stating that they were going to lift these restrictions for the remainder of the COVID pandemic. But I think, Gracie, I think you and I both know that that, that is not their goal to only have them lifted for the remainder of the COVID pandemic. Their goal is to have them lifted permanently. I called Christine not long ago, my local Planned Parenthood. I call them periodically and ask them questions. And yeah. this is just a receptionist. I call the receptionist and I ask, what does a surgical abortion cost? And... I think she said it was something like $550. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, what if I wanted a chemical abortion? And she said, it's the same price. So mm. I just want to I want to bring that up because it's very apparent to me that this is, again, all wrapped, like many things in the world are wrapped up in money. And right. there's a lot of money to be made of dispensing two pills at Planned Parenthood, right. uh, as opposed to having a whole, you know, surgical suite with a nurse and a, and a physician and, um, you know, all the hours that go into one surgical abortion or hours and, and care. You know, it's, it's criminal. I, I believe it's criminally unjust to women to offer them these pills for them to take on their own. Some of these, what about the ages of these girls? We, we have no way of controlling who gets a hold of these pills. Right. Absolutely. Well, you bring up a great point. You know, so the, the proposal now is that either they will just talk to a, a prescriber over the phone or maybe have a video visit. But then there's no way of confirming, first of all, that that woman that the physician is talking to is even the woman who is going to be taking these pills. You know, mm -hmm. there's already there's already been instances. There was one in Michigan where a boyfriend whose girlfriend was refusing to have an abortion got these pills through the mail and slipped them into her drink and caused her to have an abortion that she did not want. You know, that doesn't sound like female empowerment to me. That sounds like control of women, which of course we're absolutely against. We want women to be empowered with information. You know, they can't screen for coercion. You know, what if what if the boyfriend or a family member is standing off screen and you know, is pressuring this woman to say things so that she can get her abortion? There 
saying that an ultrasound is not needed to confirm gestational age. This medication is only approved up to 10 weeks of pregnancy. And the reason for that is because the complication rates skyrocket after 10 weeks. Even ACOG, the American College of OBGYN, says that up to 50% of women will be wrong about their gestational age based on their last menstrual period, that an ultrasound really is needed to confirm gestational age. And yet, out of the other side of their mouth, they claim that women that are seeking abortions don't need ultrasounds. And they also state that they don't need an ultrasound to rule out an ectopic pregnancy. As a radiologist, you know, these are common. We see these and oftentimes in women who have no symptoms. Um, and this is something that can be lethal to women. So, you know, we really as an organization at APLOG, as pro-life physicians, we are asking ACOG, why is it that women who are seeking abortions deserve substandard medical care? Because that's what this amounts to. And it's going to lead not only to the deaths of more preborn children, but it's going to lead to death and severe harm and injury to women. Dr. Francis, sadly, we're out of time, if you can believe it, that the time has gone so quickly. <laughs> um, but how can our listeners learn more about your organization? Yes, absolutely. So we are on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. You can just look for Applog, A-A-P-L-O-G, on any of those um, social media sites, as well as our website is www.aaplog.org. And I would encourage um, your listeners to go to our website for all of the scientific data that supports the pro-life position. Well, and I would also encourage them to find a great pro-life OBGYN for their own care. Oh, and a great pro-life radiologist as well. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. We're looking forward to welcoming you as a member. So thank you, Dr. Francis. Thank you. And now Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. The fourth Sunday of Easter each year is called Good Shepherd Sunday. Because on this day, the church focuses on the 10th chapter of the Gospel of St. John, which Jesus reveals the relationship he has with each of his faithful followers. Jesus says about himself, I am the Good Shepherd. And we as faithful followers, with some of the most famous words God has ever inspired, respond, The Lord is my shepherd. I want, I lack for nothing. We mark this truth in the heart of the Easter season each year. Because this truth is the heart of our Easter joy. With the risen Lord Jesus as our shepherd, we truly have it all. But it's key for us to believe and live by those famous words of the Responsorial Psalm. By them, we publicly confess as Catholics that our treasure is Jesus. That if we have him, but don't have everything else in the world, we still recognize how rich we are. In the midst of a consumerist society in which we're bombarded with advertisements that pretend that we'll only be happy if we obtain what they're selling, that we'll only be fulfilled if we have money and houses, fame and fortune, power and position, we Christians focus instead on Jesus the Good Shepherd, risen from the dead as the pearl of great price. We confess that what Jesus provides is far more fundamental to happiness in this world and is absolutely essential to eternal felicity with him in the eternal sheepfold than anything and everything else combined. Throughout the Good Shepherd Discourse, Jesus gives us in the 10th chapter of St. John, roughly a different third of which we get each year, Jesus reveals that he does for us essentially three things. For us to be good sheep of the Good Shepherd, we need to allow him to shepherd us in these three ways. First, he says he calls each of us by name and leads us out. He gives each of us a personal vocation, and we hear and recognize his voice as he guides us. That's the first step. The second, Jesus says he lays down his life for us. He affirms in the gospel we'll hear, no one takes my life from me. I freely lay it down. I have the power to lay it down, he says, and the power to take it up again. That power is on full display in Jesus' passion, death, and resurrection. And he loved us enough freely to give his life on Calvary to redeem us. Third, Jesus says he gives us eternal life and we shall never perish. He protects us from the thieves and the marauders and promises that when he places us in the Father's hands, no one can take us from that powerful, loving grip. Jesus continues to call us, lay down his life for us, and give us eternal life. But he does so, for the most part, by calling some of his sheep and making them effective shepherds. He takes disciples and makes them apostles and guardians. He wants to do this with each of us. If we're good sheep, then he wants us to become, in our own circumstance, a good shepherd of others, someone who helps Jesus 
call others, guide others, feed and protect others, bringing them to the source of eternal life in Jesus' name. We see this transformation of a sheep to a good shepherd in the vocation of St. Peter. After the resurrection, when Jesus appeared to the disciples on the seashore of Galilee, Jesus asked Peter three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Jesus was querying whether Peter loved him more than anything and everything else. Because the Lord wanted that love to be the distinctive mark of Peter's life from that point forward. Three times Peter replied, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And after each response, Jesus gave him a commission, a task, telling him in particular to care for Christ's lambs and sheep. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Jesus was entrusting the care and the nourishment of his flock, young and old, to Peter's loving solicitude. They would always remain Christ's sheep, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, Jesus said. But they would be guided by a sheep like themselves, whom Christ would choose, appoint, and help to be a shepherd after his own loving heart. It's obvious that Peter never forgot this lesson. Peter's love for Jesus and our love for Jesus would be shown in how we love those whom Jesus loves. He wants us to know others by name and lead them to him, to help them recognize his voice and follow him. He wants us freely to sacrifice ourselves for them because we have the power to lay our life down and we trust in Jesus' power to raise us up again. Jesus wants us to help others seize the eternal life he gives and protect them from the spiritual and earthly conmen, the thieves and the marauders, all around us, trying to preach a different gospel and path to salvation than the one Jesus the Good Shepherd gives us. This transformation of a sheep to a good shepherd is meant to happen in the life of every Christian parent, every Christian brother or sister, every Christian godparent and grandparent. But on the fourth Sunday of Easter every year, Good Shepherd Sunday, for the last 58 years, the church has celebrated the World Day of Prayer for vocations, especially priestly vocations. It's on this day that we unite ourselves to the Pope and the Catholics all over the world, praying that God the Father will send out laborers, shepherds after the heart of his Son, into the fields that are ripe. Priests are the Good Shepherd's indispensable instruments to feed his flock with himself in the Holy Eucharist. But they also nourish us with his Holy Word and the teaching of the Church. Priests guide Jesus' flock one-on-one in the ministry of mercy and the confessional, in spiritual direction and counseling, and guide the entire flock in their work as pastors, the Latin word for shepherd. They also seek to protect the flock of Christ from what Jesus calls in Today's gospel, thieves and marauders, those who would seek to harm them, who would seek to profit from them, who would metaphorically shear, milk, kill, and eat them. Having heard Jesus calling them by name, they lay down their lives for him and for Jesus' flock, seeking to help them enter into communion with Jesus, the resurrection and the life, so that they might, through the church, enter into eternal life in a secure way that no one will be able to take them from the Father's hand. On this Sunday, in which we enter into the World Day of Prayer for Vocations. We thank Jesus for the way that he has fed and tended us as his lambs and sheep throughout our life by those who love Christ enough to leave a family of their own, to leave money and possessions, to leave behind their own will in order to serve us in chastity, poverty of spirit, and obedience. We pray in a particular way that God may hear our prayers and raise up many such shepherds from among the boys of our families and parish family. Jesus, the good shepherd, will never leave his flock untended. He continues to feed, lead, and protect us. He continues to nourish, guide, and defend us. Through the priests, he makes pastors after his own sacred heart. As we prepare to listen to the good shepherd's voice speaking to us in the gospel, we ask him to make us extremely grateful for the table he prepares for us and the priesthood that uniquely makes this great banquet of life possible. We ask him to make us ever more attentive to his voice speaking to us through the church so that we might know how to hear him calling us by name, how to receive the gift of his life laid down for us freely, how to embrace that treasure of eternal life here and now, and how to follow him through the popes and priests all the way to the verdant pastures of heaven. O Jesus, good shepherd, risen from the dead, have mercy on us and help us. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 